0: Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, Thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. We promised you we would do an election episode, and we shall. But we three had a conversation the other day about the presidential electors officially voting for Joe Biden, and we wanted to do our due diligence and give a better, more thorough discussion about the election, not just about the president, but on the House, the Senate and local governments included. So today, instead of talking about the election, as some of you may have been expecting, we wanted to devote our time to something else that is also very pertinent, the coronavirus government lockdown orders. But first, as always, the random question of the episode. Christy and Cody, what is your favorite board game to play? And I want to differentiate this. Your favorite board game to play with your friends and your, and, and your regulars and the ones that you play with family? Because I know that they're often different.
1: Which one are we going for, friends or family?
2: <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> Oh man, I don't see, I don't play, my family doesn't play board games. That's not a thing. So there is no like board game that my family gets together Drinking game. Neither like my, know. like
0: my family, we're, we're big spoons.
2: We do spoons. Uh, What's spoons?
1: <gasps> Seriously?
0: <gasps> Am I supposed spoons. to know what that is? Yes. <laughs> yes. So yes. <laughs> if, 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 let's say we have five people, right? And there are four spoons in the center and I have a deck of cards and everyone gets four cards. What you're looking for is to get four of a kind. So four aces, four kings, four twos, whatever, right? But you can only ever have four, four cards in your hand. So I pick up one for the pile. I don't need it. I pass it on. And we keep doing that. And when one of us gets four, we grab a spoon, right? And once that first spoon is grabbed, everyone Mm -hmm. else has to scramble to grab their own spoon. And the person who doesn't, doesn't get the spoon is kicked out and we move on to the next round until
2: there's one champion or two champions left. You've never played spoons before? No, I've never even heard of spoons. That's what? So,
1: so Man. the first Thanksgiving when I met my husband, um, before we were married, I went to his family's like big Thanksgiving, and that is the game they played with spoons. So,
2: my family just drinks. Like we don't, we don't need. <laughs> there's not games to play. Like the game is finish your beer and grab another. I. I, <laughs> I you serious. don't need an excuse.
0: <laughs> I mean I, I mean, I guess, No, go, you know, float your boat. The problem Alcohol, is are all apparently. too competitive.
2: See, I'm, I'm way too competitive. So when you get into like board game, like Monopoly, like you get into like six month long fights. Like <laughs> it doesn't go well. Are you the kind of guy that will pile off his people in Australia when playing Risk? Oh, I, I will do whatever it takes to win. Yeah. I, 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 yeah.
1: Chrissy, how about you? Um, so my family, I was like born into my parents and brothers, like we're all into card games yeah. or Boulder dash, but like my, that's where you like make up definitions for words and you have to guess. And it's based on how well you know someone. So <laughs> it, it works best with like my brothers who I grew up with. Um, but like my husband and kids in you actually loves settlers of Catan and Ooh, not putting yeah. you, my seven year old son beats us eight times out of 10. He is so good.
2: I don't want to of- brag. I feel like I could probably school your son at Catan.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. We'll have to I hope
2: so, Mr. JD. <laughs> I feel like it's not like that's not a badge of honor to be like, oh, cool, an adult can be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll tell you this. So, my husband has like two master's degrees, one in cybersecurity, like the world's highest certification in cybersecurity. And my son even beats him. Oh, that's pretty so- good.
2: Catan is, yeah. is definitely the game like katan are like cards against humanity definitely play those with friends the most those are always the go-to
0: we're usually a big phase 10 family um my yeah. mother she'll be stuck on phase three for generations and then swoops in to win the game by like the 20th round it's insane
2: we've recently awesome. discovered
0: secret hitler
2: have any of you played this game? Yo, before? I played that for the first wow. time like two weekends ago. A bunch uh, of fun. It was a lot of fun, but I feel like there's a fatal flaw in the game. As soon as you discover who fascism. Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> oh,
0: That's part of the game. I I gotta <laughs> say, narr- narrating narrating who the Hitler is is a lot of fun. Anyway, I feel like there's a flaw in that game. Is that when once you discover who is a who is a known um, what is it, liberal? Once you discover who a known liberal is if someone understands the game, they say, just give it to them every single time. Give it to them every time. I'm like, that defeats the fun of the game. I mean, I get it, that's, that's how you win, but that's like, meh.
2: I don't know, whatever. Whatever, all right. Four Fascism's games. a good segue, well done.
0: Uh, you know, I didn't intend on that. You, you're, you're taking this one for me. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use that segue. I had another one in the back of my mind, we'll use this one, right? So fascism and secret Hitler and fascism in real life are two very different things because one is a lot of fun and the other is no fun at all. It is the antithesis of fun. Today we're going to be talking about the lockdowns in regards to the pandemic. Um, To understand what exactly we're talking about, we want to kind of establish a couple of things here. The first is we want to know what does a lockdown look like? And, of course, this answer is going to vary from local government to local government, uh, from state to state. Even (laughs) it varies from country to country. But it usually, and Christian Cody, you can help me out here, it usually relies on a local government's, or depending on what country, and the national government's power to pull and regulate and mess with a business's operation license, especially if you're a restaurant. and sometimes it works with uh, issuing fines, right? If you do this, we passed a new ordinance where we'll issue you a fine of like $5,000 a day or something like that. Can you two help me out here? Because I know that there are some legalities here that um, I'm not aware of, that a lot of people aren't aware of. What are the laws that these mayors and city managers and governors are using to try and implement these lockdowns? And what exactly are these lockdown orders requiring?
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, I won't pretend to describe lockdowns to individuals that have been locked down along with us for the past nine months, but, uh, you know, obviously, so they vary state by state, city by city. Um, We haven't seen a federal attempt yet. I think there's probably, yeah. yeah, there's probably good reason for that. And we will, I think, get into that a little bit later. But basically what most of these states are operating under, and even cities, are, Statutes. They're, they're statutory laws that were passed ages ago that give the government authority to respond in emergency situations. Um, pandemics aren't new. This is, you know, uh, the newest one in, in, in a long series dating back to the, the Roman Empire and before. But um, amongst these statutes, they give governors or city managers, or, you know, various authorities, um, certain amounts of power to be able to respond to an emergency situation. And the reason it sounds like I'm being incredibly vague and I'm not describing anything at all is because they truly do vary so much state by state. Some of them have very strong um, date requirements. Some of them don't have any date requirements at all. Some of them define uh, pandemics and health related issues. Others have much more vague language, so it really does depend based on your city, your state. Hell, I know we have some international uh, listeners, your country, what uh, the government is able to do in response when well talk-
1: that 's really true, and I think the vagueness and the great disparity in the laws is what makes you know a difference even around the United States. I was just talking to someone who whose friend is in Georgia right now, actually working on the Senate elections down there. And like no one in Georgia is wearing masks and not in Alabama either. Like it's completely open. Everything's free and open. It's not really because they have any less cases of COVID than we do here in Colorado or other States you could point out in the United States, but their government laws are just different. Or from my perspective, whatever laws you have or don't have, a lot of it also rests on the propensity of the person in charge, be that the mayor, the set of County commissioners, or the governor to take as much power as they want to presume the laws give them Uh, and they can always fall back on like the 10th amendment um, police powers to say this is necessary for the health and safety and you know and i imagine we'll get into this later but thankfully some courts even today uh, san diego court actually began to push back on some of that um, even unrelated to houses of worship we've seen some pushback from courts on that uh, people are probably well aware of, but they started actually pushing back on the government's restricting restaurants today, which is- Hold
2: on. You're burying the lead fine. here though, because the San Diego court order was for two strip clubs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but the, <laughs> you would have to point that out. But- um, <laughs> I do have
0: students that listen to this podcast, by the way. I do have students.
2: <laughs> hey man, you gotta, gotta, gotta earn, earn a, a living.
1: But um, you're correct and, what, what I thought was interesting, though, is what the county did is they saw the court order that, yes, did apply to two strip clubs specifically. And they said, well, they had been able to keep their customers safe. And then the county realized, oh, shoot, restaurants can make the exact same argument. And so the county pulled back and said, OK, we're going to lift all restrictions on restaurants now, too, because there's really no difference in ability to protect customers until the court can clarify their order. So that
2: might be the first court in the nation that's specifically looked at a strip club and said they can definitely keep their patrons safe.
1: Oh, very <laughs> <awesome. Yes. laughs> but, uh,
2: I'm actually, so I'm actually from San Diego and, and San Diego has been fighting this a lot. And so that's why it's really interesting for them. People don't, people don't know, or, or some people might not be aware that um, San Diego County tends to be a little bit more conservative. Uh, it's the most conservative of the big three cities. A um, lot of military, a lot of retirees. So it does tend to be a little bit more conservative, but they've been handling, um, the situation a lot better than other cities and and the mayor has repeatedly fought to reopen. So I'm not necessarily surprised that they've, they've pushed that through, but um, Stan, one of the things that you're kind of getting at is, is how, what's the hook here? How do they get involved? So it's not just these emergency power statutes. When you get into like restaurants and when you get into bars you start talking about licensing Um, and that's really where people get nervous. We live in a world now in the United States that you cannot do anything without the permission of government, uh, which includes operating a business and includes serving drinks. So, the problem is a lot of those licenses are all predicated on exactly what Christie's talking about here: keeping your patrons safe, health and safety. Well, if the government comes in and says, "Well, COVID is nothing; you can do will keep your your patrons inherently safe. unsafe." Exactly, then they can condition the operation of your business because of that license on public health and safety. And that's the strongest hook that most of these places have. And that's why I think in the media, a lot of what you're seeing is reactions of um, business owners, especially restaurant owners who are reacting against this because they are bearing the burden of most of the actual enforcement.
0: So yeah. when it comes to uh, to both of these, emergency power legislation and
2: business regulation,
0: emer- if I'm understanding this right, emergency power legislation has to come from the legislature, right? Like they have to grant the executive this power, either you know, through the law itself or some emergency act, right? Yes. Correct.
1: Yeah, and in many cases, mm-hmm. it was done like a long time ago.
0: And uh-huh. the administration of these business licenses, I know that you know, city councils and states. They have laws that outline how to go about that. But the finer details of a business license, of granting a license, of qualifying what is required in a license, you know, when Fort Collins or Denver, when they say, hey, we're going to shut down businesses for a while because of this, does the city council have to approve that or can like a city manager or whoever is in charge of these business licenses, can they just make that declaration by fiat?
1: (laughs) largely depends on the area. I mean, licensing is so particular state by state and even local jurisdiction by local jurisdiction. Um, And a lot of times, at least here in Colorado, I've, I've been talking to quite a few business owners or restaurant owners or spoken to some groups of them. And one of their biggest question is precisely on this line, why is it so easy for the state or the liquor board is really who who's doing it and they have power given to them i think by the legislature and there's local liquor boards but there's also the state liquor board and it's often the state investigators coming in and they say how can they just take my license because i'm opening my restaurant like how is that a violation of a liquor license but liquor licensing is often based on you only get to keep your license if you follow all laws and have good moral character and so the state will make the argument that, well, if you're not following the mandates and restrictions on COVID, and you're opening in violation, well, you just lost your lic- liquor license, buddy, because you're no longer a moral person who follows law. So it's extremely strange and broad.
0: I want to yeah. put a I want to put a plug on that r- just real quick because I I am now brewing in a, no, a future episode. <laughs> Specifically on liquor regulations because I oh think, that's what I was just going to say yeah and the reason and the reason being is I think we have a potential guest episode on that Ooh. brewing up ha, brewing up I think we have a potential <laughs> one on that because of of all the things liquor regulations are just insane but I want to I I I want to put a plug on that real quick I don't want to I don't want to use all of it up right now. But I, I, the whole point is that there is a, a liquor board or a restaurant board or some bureaucrat out there that's doing this, right? It's not just like there's – not, there's not like a public debate on this. There's no policy no, discussion no. In, in the halls of elected office. It's appointed, isn't it, Most of, mostly?
2: Yes and no. So what's, the problem is what you see is the, the simplest um, – you see the enforcement arm of the state. Right, so that's what you're interacting with when when they come and pull your license off the wall, when which in some states they literally do. Um, it, you're seeing the enforcement arm, but there's a lot of things that went on behind the scenes, right? So there's an, a national, there's an internationally declared pandemic currently. There's a nationally declared pandemic currently. Just a, I I want to say every state has declared a. A pandemic, although I, I, there may be one or two holdouts. I'm not Probably sure. Not South Dakota. <laughs> I was to say uh, South Dakota is literally the one that popped into my head. Of like, I, I don't know. If she's she's pulled the trigger on that one yet, but <laughs> so you've got all of that, right? Each state has a governor that's issued an order. You know, even in um, Georgia, right? So they don't have a they don't have a statewide mask mandate, but Governor Kemp has still issued orders related to it. The state health authority has still issued orders where they made findings of fact. So there's a, what you're seeing is the enforcement arm. You're, you're seeing the person that comes out, but what you're not seeing is all of those, those wheels of, of government and bureaucracy have already turned and have pointed everything in the direction of, you know, enforcement against restaurants, enforcement against liquor licenses, enforcement against um, uh, businesses, gyms, churches, whatever you want. But the everything has turned to make that possible so um it seems relatively easy because everything moved rather quickly and and we went from being able to walk outside and hug a friend while at a concert to now you know being stuck in your home for 14 days in some places so it it felt easy uh, liberty kind of got erased pretty quickly but there were a lot of government mechanisms that turned in order to allow enforcement agents to be able to to do these things
0: these mechanisms turned more or less out of public view.
2: Yeah. So, right. There's a lot of things happening. And you know, some people have read, some people might've read the state, their statewide order, Mm -hmm. but you might not have read the statewide health order and then your individual health authorities order. And there's so many things going on. There are so many orders. There's so many findings of fact that it's impossible to keep up with for most people.
0: And and that's a big problem. And and I want to come back to that idea. I think I come, that, that, that should come up later, is the idea of how overlapping, confusing regulations deteriorate freedom in general. I want to come back to that that's, because that's a really important idea. I do want to discuss just very briefly, is there a general difference legality-wise between these lockdowns, like businesses have to shut down, churches have to close, et cetera, et cetera, and mask mandates? Is there a legality difference between the two?
1: Hmm. I, think I think there is. Uh, yeah. You you go first, Katie.
2: <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I think there's a different, we use a lot of words interchangeably during this pandemic, but I think there's differences between a lot of these things. So um, there's a difference between a lockdown and a quarantine. There's a difference between lockdown orders and mask mandate orders. And there's differences between all of those interchangeably. Um, quarantines are something that the founders and framers were relatively comfortable with. Um, quarantine comes from the Venetian word for forty days. The idea there was that when a when a ship traveled into port from um, a, a place where there was an outbreak of of something, yellow fever, m- measles, whatever it might be, and they had a a good suspicion that somebody on board might be infected or that you know they're, they're, the crew might be or passengers then they would quarantine the ship, which meant they would leave it in port for 40 days. After the 40 days, then you could disembark because it would have made its way through the, the crew by that point. Um, so quarantine, there's also cities in the uh, the 18th century that would just lock down, or not lock down, sorry, quarantine. See, even I'm doing it.
1: <laughs> um,
2: because there was an actual outbreak, right? Lockdowns, in, in my view, and maybe this is a am ascribing word or definition to it, is there's not necessarily direct evidence of actual transmission between the people or by the businesses, right? These restaurant lockdowns aren't supported by data at all. I mean, in New York, it's what every restaurant gets closed, whether or not they were the source of uh, of an outbreak or not. Exactly. And and I think in New York, it was like cases were less than 2% of cases were attributed to restaurants, even though they just Mm -hmm. closed them all down again.
0: I mean, schools suffer the same problem. Like we're, we're, we're realizing that students generally do not, Transmit all that much like they 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 did not and they have not been the hotbed of
2: outbreaks that we thought they were,
0: but yeah, uh, school districts did what they did anyway
2: yeah so so that's more of a lockdown to me you're just kind of closing everything even if that even if, like without that kind of data support that the founders and framers would have uh, looked for now mask mandates you're talking you're not talking about um in my view, you're not talking about prohibiting businesses from operating. You're talking about requiring individuals to engage in certain conduct. Not just preventing conduct, but requiring conduct. Correct. And some people have tried to phrase this the other way of just, they're saying, well, no, you're just preventing them from using businesses unless, but that's not realistic. You can't, you cannot deprive individuals of certain basic needs as well as their certain basic uh, fundamental natural rights. So uh, the, the, government is without authority to regulate certain things like your ability to, well, they can't stop you from eating. Let me say that. (laughs) Um, So when you require specific individual performance in order to engage in an action that is necessary for life and the pursuit of happiness, I think that's where you get into some problematic areas, especially when you don't have um, strong data like an infected ship to point to with, to to be coupled with that mandate.
0: So you're saying there's more or less a
2: a, a founding father
0: libertarian justification for quarantine, right? With enough, with enough uh, reason or evidence, there's a valid case for the state to say, you got to stay put for a little bit.
2: There is a, there is an original interpretation that would allow for local governments to quarantine places where there's an outbreak. I wouldn't necessarily say that's a libertarian perspective, but there's definitely a constitutional constitutional originalism perspective there. That's well, and I think
1: I agree with what you said, Cody. I think that's a great explanation. I think too, one of the differences in quarantine originally, how it was originally thought of by the founders and lockdowns today is the length of time they're taking too, which you made reference to Cody, but instead of it being really relevant to something short that if it, everyone participates in it it actually solves the public health problem and then it's done and over and this is why courts i think are opening up to different arguments right now because the longer things like this go down it is no longer a quarantine when it doesn't only apply to the sick people or people who are directly exposed it's a lockdown for everyone with huge economic costs huge even life costs if you look at suicide rates and child abuse rates. So now the courts are having to look at this long extended, arguably with no end in sight even now, according to some governments, some state or local governments, depending on who we're talking about. Um, It's just, it does bring in a lot of those individual liberty issues. And I think one way they've gotten around some of the individual liberty issues on the mask mandate was because of some of the exceptions that they at least Claim to have put in place. Like, okay, if you have a medical condition that prevents you from wearing a mask, you still have to be allowed into the grocery store. You still have to be allowed into those, those basic necessities that you would not survive without. I, I'm very curious what they would do if someone tried to claim like a religious reason to not wear a mask. I've never <laughs> heard of that. I'm just saying like, it's with all these constitutional rights that America recognizes conflict. Um,
0: Without the Religious Freedom Freedom Restoration Act, the Supreme Court has not exactly been very good on Mm. religious liberty. They've been actually quite horrific without the uh, RFRA. But speaking of the Supreme Court, because you guys had mentioned it earlier, and you've kind of led into this as well, Christy. um, Very pertinent to Colorado, the Supreme Court has started to roll back some governor and local regulations regarding um, places of worship, right? There was a church in Well County that challenged Governor Polis on uh, the restrictions, and the Supreme Court—and you can correct me if I'm wrong—basically said the restrictions against places of worship cannot be greater than those against "quote unquote" essential services, right? And so they struck they, they struck that that limit down. To me, this brings up a few questions, especially because I'm not I'm 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 not a lawyer, and so I'm I'm like okay. That's a curious way to say that one. What is an essential business or service?
1: Yeah.
0: What's the scientific rationale for allowing a greater amount of people in one place, but not another say Costco versus this mom and pop diner. And, and this is probably the most important one. You know, this is great. The Supreme court did this, but what if the restrictions on businesses were tighter? What if they did have a greater restriction on businesses? Could they then place greater restrictions on places of worship? And would the court be, that's just fine? Like, can you help me navigate these questions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat debatable for sure, like what the Supreme Court would do, especially with the addition of Amy Coney Barrett and how that puts John Roberts no longer in the deciding vote um, of the court as often as he was used to being and i think we'll still see what amy coney barrett does in general but i think she's very much on the side of religious freedom and yet a lot of the originalists on the court still make very narrow decisions and will often only make the decision they're being asked to make and so if the question presented to them was and this is how a lot of the church cases were framed churches are being restricted more than what these states are calling essential businesses or essential services. How can the state restrict us? We, As a church, we directly have the freedom of religion um, directly right there in the First Amendment. So how can you give Costco a freedom that you're not giving to a church? So it was like specifically that question being asked at the Supreme Court. So I don't think the fact that they said, you can't prefer, I think Gorsuch wrote something about you can't prefer a secular place to a religious place. He said that about the governor of New York, Mm -hmm. and it was very clear he was making secular preferences as the governor, which the governor uh, and any government is supposed to be religiously neutral, not giving a preference to um, secular institutions. And Cuomo was clearly doing that. So I think they're just addressing (laughs) the narrow issue brought to them, but I don't think that necessarily gives us a window into how far they might go if the governments tried something else. I think that would be yet another case. No, that's
0: a fair that's a fair question. If you like restricted judges, then that's no, that's this is the best you could hope for, right? You wouldn't want them to go any farther out of principle. Cases and controversies. (laughs) You know, gosh darn it. But that still doesn't answer my other question. And this is something the court probably doesn't address and they probably will never address and this is something that we as free sovereign citizens have to address essential businesses, um, what exactly does that mean? And why is it a term being used?
2: So here's the, when you're taught, so. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have to get to like multiple levels here, right? So what we're talking about now is the things that courts are going to care about. Now uh, it's been a few years since the constitution was drafted and ratified. Uh, We've strayed a little bit. Potentially just, be. Just, 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 just a touch, just a tab lad. Yeah. So we're not necessarily talking anymore about what uh, would have been the original constitutional structure, right? I mean, I'm not sure you could have had businesses like license, business licenses like you did under the original constitutional structure. So, so we've strayed. Mm, um, I'll push on that, but we'll get to that. Well, I said to the extent we currently do. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Um, <laughs> So when you're talking about what the courts are going to care about with essential, what the courts are going to care about most are those things that offer services or um, products that are deemed to be fundamental uh, rights to the Constitution or protected by the Constitution or granted by the Constitution. So... The only exception that you're gonna get there is kind of criminal speedy trial because they've just suspended those left, right, and center. So there's people sitting in prison that probably shouldn't be sitting in prison anymore, but, or jail, but anyways. um, When you're talking about uh, religious institutions, when you're talking about uh, Second Amendment issues, firearms, when you're talking about certain due process requirements, those are where you're going to get the court interested in what constitutes essential. If you've got a church that's completely closed down and other things are open, if you've got it so that individuals uh, can no longer purchase firearms in any way, shape or form, that's where the court's going to weigh in on essential. Now the other key to this inquiry is going to be equal protection. Is going to be, or disparate treatment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Is a state or is a government treating one group of individuals or one type? Very different than similarly situated individuals. So this is where you get into this difference with churches. The court is not going to like you saying you can have a 50% capacity in Costco, but only a 25% capacity in a church. That's a problem because you, the, the state needs to demonstrate why it's playing picking favorites there. This is also going to be problematic when you start talking about uh, changes in occupancy limits between similarly situated restaurants. So if for some reason, and I have not seen this, this is me using a ridiculous example. If for some reason they came out and said, look, we've got some data that says Mexican restaurants have demonstrated a larger spread than Italian places. So Mexican restaurants, 25% capacity, Italian places, 50% capacity. That's going to be something where the court's going to weigh in and go, yeah, that's not going to work for us. <laughs> even with the even with the scientific, they aspect. would have to they would have to demonstrate a <clears throat> significant amount of science in that case because the burden is going to be a very high against them. Because the we're pres- going to the
0: compelling government
2: interest tests yeah. and strict scrutiny and so on and so Correct. forth. Yeah, okay. so the the presumption is going to be against the government in that context. In the other context, when it's an equally applicable law to all types of businesses and so on and so forth that's when the court's going to defer to the government the most. And when you have the person that's in charge of making health decisions walk into the courtroom and say, hey, I was either elected or appointed to determine the health issues in this state, and I'm saying that this is a health issue, the court's going to defer to the, the government in that context.
0: So if I'm a crafty governor or a crafty health officer, um, no, and I no, I have this legal background, I'm going to craft it in such a way that Okay, I want to make sure I reduce the spread and this by this factor. And in order to avoid uh, the court shutting me down, I'm going to do this average, you know, 28.3 percent across the board: restaurants, businesses, uh, bowling alleys, churches, etc. And it's going to be equally applied. That way, I avoid the Fourteenth Amendment problem. I avoid the First, Second Amendment problem, and I avoid all that other stuff. If I'm crafty, that's that's what I could do. Is that what you're saying? And the court would be like, yeah, yeah,
2: go ahead. Yeah, that's probably the easiest. If you walked in um, and just said, hey, everything's at a 25% capacity in state, you're probably have one of the stronger orders when you walk into court.
0: And the only way to you no, know, the only reason that a governor or a health officer would not do that would purely be by public outrage,
2: more or less. Yeah, and so what they're doing is they're trying to justify some of the orders as well as saying that they're following science and saying that they're trying to to do uh, to impact people's lives as little as possible while also slowing the spread as much as possible. That's why they're they're closing movie theaters and bowling alleys completely and having grocery stores open to fifty percent because it's pretty hard to go into court and, and argue that you have a, a constitutionally or statutorily protected right to go bowling. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the other thing, I think, actually, some of the recent orders in Colorado are a pretty good example of the disparate treatment that Cody's talking about, and that if you were, I guess, not a smart public official, (laughs) you would make these kind of orders. Um, To your point, Stanton, like, it's in Colorado, if you examine the public health order that was most recently amended, I think, last Monday, it is to me, very odd how disparate it is and why they would even do this because it's so obvious that they're treating different places different. So here's an example. It was originally where if your county was in the red level, which is very dangerous level, according to the government, restaurants had to be closed to all indoor dining. Restaurants, bars, taverns, no one could go inside. I mean, takeout delivery only. But it applied across the board to the kind of places you're talking about, Cody, like the movie theaters, the bowling alleys, museums, aquariums, all those kind of places, they were equally treated as restaurants originally. But last Monday, the state of Colorado decided to alter that and decide that some educational institutions, and they specifically named museums, aquariums, and zoos, when the counties in red level can now have a 25% indoor capacity while still forcing restaurants and all these other places to allow no one inside and um, one of the state legislators I talked to, he's like, well, did you know the museums and aquariums and zoos have a really good lobbyist at the state capitol? He's like, that's how they got that exception. But honest, whether, whether that's you know exactly what happened or not, the thing is those are the kind of examples that courts will look at in public health orders and say, what's a scientific basis? Like the state of Colorado has been saying, well, the reason we're not allowing indoor dining and restaurants is because when people gather in the same air for more than 15 minutes the virus spreads. Like, clearly they don't look at lines in Costco. But besides that point, um, museums, aquariums, and zoos, like, people stay longer there than they do in restaurants. I know I do when I take my kids. Like, we spend far more time in the museum. So the state is kind of defying its own reasoning by suddenly allowing a 25% capacity for those places, but still saying, how dare you sit down and have dinner at a restaurant? That's still banned and scientifically dangerous. They're going <laughs> to mess themselves up.
0: This is probably the the and and I'll bring this topic back up this is probably been the most frustrating aspect about the lockdown uh, shenanigans is is two things one is graft the idea that if I know someone if i've got a lobbyist or if I have my uh, in with the mayor or with the governor uh, I can get my industry or even my specific business to be exempted for x y or z reason right and there's no there's nothing that my competitors or anyone else who's even not my competitor can really do about it. That's really what frustrates me, but perhaps what gets me even more. And this, uh, this is directly pertinent. So I, um, so I, I direct, uh, my, my school's high school play. Um, and we had this weird order. My patrons had to be 25 feet from my actors, which is quite a bit. Um, and that makes not a lot of sense to me because my actors already have to wear a mask, right? They already have to do this. So they wore a mask on stage. They rocked it. They did awesome. We, we practiced uh, the, the, their eye work and everything else and their voice work, but they wore their mask, which is what they had to do in the beginning. The actors can be within six, three feet of each other. The audience members can be within six feet of each other. I didn't understand the 25 feet, and there was I. There's no rationale for it. At my administration de, uh, meets with our county health officer, like on a weekly basis. They have on a speed dial, and sometimes they don't. The, the The county health they don't know what the rules are. There's so many conflicting, overlapping, uh, seemingly contradictory guidelines, rules, and what's a guideline? What's a rule? And this is what i think is perhaps most dangerous when these kinds of rules these edicts these orders start to become really really conflicting confusing overlapping no one knows what's lawful anymore not for, forget what what's right for, forget what's right we we are beyond the point where this is morally acceptable what's lawful right and if a, well, if a citizen doesn't even know what the law is, what how how can we expect them to operate freely?
1: Yeah. No, I agree with you. And it's been, it's been a lot of people are in weird situations with it. And your example, Stanton, I'm next to positive that comes from a CDPHE state level order that they imposed on all the counties. They choose to impose some things on them, but not all things. Some things they give them the ability to decide. Some counties that are better like for real, some county commissioners that are better at negotiating with the state than others, or perhaps have better connections with CPPHE, actually get preferential treatment, even though they're in the identical red level as other counties, like we we could go through all of that. Um, There's just some odd instances of that in the state. And um, I mean, another, (laughs) I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway, another example, I think we all know, um, Jared Polis's partner is a big fan of animals and animal rights. Well, do you know what one of the essential businesses that have no capacity limits on them right now is animal grooming facilities that is being classed as an essential. I I checked it myself like three times to make sure I was reading it right. The newest public health order defines them as an essential business with no indoor capacity limits. I mean, I'm not sure that people can't clip their dog's fingernails and comb them a few times, you know, during a pandemic, but whatever point being these orders are being pushed down when the state feels like it with little explanation, little scientific backup. You try and core the state government and give them, ask them to give you the scientific data. I know an attorney who has been doing that. Basically, they don't have it. I, like, wanted, I so want to give it.
0: the governor the benefit of the doubt that he didn't exempt it or didn't pressure him because of that. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I have so little distrust of any politician at this current moment that why not? That sounds like a plausible concept to me that that checks out
1: i'm just throwing everything out now you know (laughs) i don't actually know why he did it either i just find you know it it is strange when it's not when you can't have an across the board if it's really scientific and we know that people doing certain things indoors endanger people we really have a basis for what we're doing then then let's do it i guess for a limited period of time while still protecting people's essential rights but when we're just going to pick and choose our favorites or the ones with the best lobbyists or the ones that we prefer and have zero basis for why your kids can't speak from the stage six feet away instead of 25. At, they're requiring pastors to do the same thing in, in houses of worship, you me be 25 feet from your congregation. So I think their reason is something about projecting your voice. You need to be at least 25 feet away, but I don't know where they got that. And they're not very forthcoming with the information. <laughs>
2: All right. So for me, the the biggest thing is just, so, I mean, obviously I'm a constitutional law attorney. I've been dealing with these issues now for months and months and months. And as we go through, um, and even, even for the past, you know, half an hour or whatever, we've been wearing our our lawyer hats, Christy and I have been talking about like what courts are going to look at, what are we going to evaluate, you know, disparities in governor's orders. But, um, you know, fortunately, this this is partially my time to, to take off my lawyer hat a little bit and, and put on my liberty hat, if you will. And, and I think one of the things that's most concerning to me as a private individual is uh, isn't the question of is the reason that, you know, animal grooming facilities are included in the executive order uh, because of some you know, personal relationship. What concerns me more is that's a possibility. The fact that we have a system where a personal relationship could potentially affect the lives of millions of people because of this vast exercise of power is what's so terrifying to me.
0: The very fact that that possibility is a reality
2: should be terrifying enough. Exactly. The fact that a lobbyist could have walked in and convinced a legislature that they get to be open while other people get to be closed. I don't care if they have great reasoning one way or another, the fact that the government can exercise that, that, that brunt of authority. And so I think it's really interesting, um, because I've yet to mention Rome and I am uh, contractually (laughs) obligated to do so in every episode. Uh, um, I think it's really interesting that right now stoicism has been on the rise. And as a result, a lot of people are following uh, different social media accounts or books and whatnot that, you know, profess the stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius, you know, the uh, emperor of Rome once co-emperor prior to the existence of a plague and became sole emperor because of a plague (laughs) is, uh, you know, kind of raised on high for his response to the, 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 the Antonine Plague in Rome uh, in around 180. And his response <laughs> wasn't to like shut down the Roman Empire. And, and again, I'm not a big fan of most Roman emperors. Aurelius is probably the best, but...
0: What, what is he like? The, what, the last of the great, everything after him just kind of like went to hell?
2: Yeah. So he was the last of the five good emperors because instead of adopting a non-biological heir in order to lead the empire, he... Uh, allowed one of his actual biological descendants to, to, to rise. And there's a long running theory in in Roman uh, history that anybody who grew up in the emperor's palace turns out to be a terrible emperor. And it holds pretty true if you look through. So anyways, um, you know, his response wasn't to, to end the empire. His response was to, you know, remain neutral, to allow life to continue as it should, and then to respond to the effects now, obviously, science is a little bit different now, travel's a little bit different now, I understand that. But, you know, he was hailed for his response to the Roman plague, which um, lasted for years. And he did so by continuing to ensure that people were able to engage in their life, but also by responding to where the empire was hit the hardest, and by finding creative solutions to address that. So in cities and towns where individuals were careful and the plague swept through and, and they, you know, there were severe losses, uh, Aurelius would relocate individuals who were, you know, seeking to, to move into the empire, basically refugees or immigrants, uh, and would allow them to, to move into these towns that, that had a severely decreased population. So he responded and he responded by drafting people or by allowing people to enter into the military who wouldn't have otherwise been allowed to enter into in order to fill out the ranks. He did these things by using creative solutions to respond to the outcome. He did not respond to the possibility. And I think that's the biggest difference that we have when we get into these systems with our government is we're not responding to outcomes. I know a lot of people say that we're looking at transmission rates and we're looking at death tolls, but we're we're reacting to something that hasn't yet happened in most of these scenarios. We are saying, oh, well, it could possibly transmit through indoor dining. Therefore, we're going to shut down indoor dining. Well, look at the data. It's not. We're saying, oh, it could possibly be transmitted by kids to their parents and then to their grandparents. So we're going to go ahead and shut down schools. Look at the data. It's not. So we're not going and and responding to what's actually happening, governments are making up these farcical situations in their head, not the pandemic, but the outcomes of the pandemic. They're making up these farcical situations and then are crafting orders that respond to things that aren't actually happening in daily life. Mm -hmm. And when you have government that is able to prematurely restrict and prematurely, um, you know, alter your daily life that's when i get most concerned and then when you start talking about you know what's the influence there and and where is the where are those factors coming from on that broad power then it gets even more concerning
0: you we had mentioned at the beginning that there really isn't a lot of federal level mandates like the closest we had was uh what was the department of housing and urban development uh, preventing landlords from collecting rent or something like that but really we don't really have anything and that broadly comes down to the fact that congress simply doesn't have the authority to issue that kind of legislation and issue that authority to the bureaucracy and yet and if you'll remember in the early episode when we asked what was the most dangerous amendment in the constitution and i said it was the 10th amendment remember when i said that because i feel pretty right right about now the 10th amendment protects the states from the government trying to seize their power right so uh, it says any power not delegated to the federal government shall be reserved for the state right reserved powers well reserved powers is just a sneaky word for police powers because <laughs> you no know, we ask you no know, i ask you what's the legal authority for a lock? and what's the legal thing we talk about liquor boards like oh, all this and that's all terrifying but why do states even have the power to have liquor boards to have business licenses to have all this stuff and it comes to the fact that the constitution and nothing else prohibits it we don't prohibit state and local governments from doing this unless the people of those states have prohibited their state government from doing it in the first place which brings me back to my point the 10th amendment Sanctions these powers, and there's nothing Congress can do about it. And this is what I'm getting at: police powers, the ability of the state and local governments to regulate your health, your wealth, and 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 um, and your joy, your entertainment. That kind of power has been with the state and local governments forever, since before the Constitution. Uh, arguably since even, even the days before, before the Revolutionary War, those powers have been there forever. And this raises a really important question to me, two questions. Where on earth do we get this idea that this is an okay thing to have, right? How, how, did we, how do we have a society where Patrick Henry is alive and says the federal government should have that power yeah, but yeah, sure, the states can have that power. And then the next question is, what do we do about it?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think part of the reason is that when people in the Founding Fathers or look at any society in history that basically has come together and said, yes, we agree that we want to be governed collectively together. We don't want to just run around and each make our own rules. Who cares if, they, if my rules hurt you or your rules hurt me? or his rules for my kid, like, we don't care, we'll live our own lives. Like, that's obviously been a disaster anywhere that's been tried, because people are not good at restraining themselves. However, um, you know, and that's, I think, what draws people to say, yes, we want some sort of collective government that that lays some basic groundwork for how we all have to operate. And, And we, the founding fathers, actively agreed to participate in this collective agreement together. They could have split apart and each state could have been its own nation. But they thought, you know, of course, the collective agreement was better for everyone, and they ended up being right. And I think at the time, though, (laughs) Cody, I see your face. Uh, At the time, (laughs) they, you know, they trusted the state governments perhaps more than they would have (laughs) had they seen them today. They were so used to small local governments with small populations uh, state governments who operated perhaps more like boards of county commissioners in the number of population centers that they oversaw. And so I think they assumed that going forward, government wouldn't put its fingers in people's lives so much. It's just, I don't think it's something they could conceive of because they did create the best structure. I mean, that, in my view, that has existed in throughout history to limit government. But We've amended it. We've changed it. We've grown in population. Certain states want want more powers than others. And I think to answer your second question, Stanton, people of states haven't gotten together and said, you know what? We do have the ability to limit our state governments. We do have the ability to get laws passed at the local or state level to stop our governor from having this many emergency powers, to Put more restrictions on our health departments that are slamming down the hammer on us to change some of these business licensing. So all that power isn't with the government, but people, I hope that this whole COVID thing has helped people recognize if you don't stop government, it's going to stop you and, and this we is, need to get in there and change it.
0: And this is something that, you know, the, 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 the fighting libertarian spirit of America has certainly deteriorated in the past 230 years since now since Patrick Henry, since Thomas Jefferson, since all those greats. But something that uh, a, a friend of mine remarked to me the other day, um, you know, these, these local health coordinators and officers, right? Some very good people who are doing their best to do their job, right? Who are enforcing these orders, right? Shutting down restaurants and doing all that. You know, they, some of them can be blamed. Some of them are directly involved in making this policies. Others are just doing their job. And I can appreciate that. And I'm going to say something a little bit off. So I want everyone to you know, just be patient. I will explain myself. So just be, just those of you listening, just wait. I will explain. In the 1770s, leading up, and even before, leading up to the Revolutionary War, uh, King George III and Parliament started issuing all of these laws, the Stamp Act, and so on and so forth. And in retaliation to these, relatively speaking, these, these not so invasive laws, because these laws that Parliament passed were not all that invasive. Some were, but really they were actually quite mild to, to today's standards. They reacted harshly, right? Eventually war, right? We eventually just said, yeah, we're, we're done, war. But before war, the tax collectors of King George we didn't just say, ah, they're doing their job, leave them alone. They got tarred and feathered. Now, people like John Adams, a very kind man, a very, a man who, no, grumpy, but kind man who believed in justice and the rule of law, he saw this as a colossal problem. Like, this should not be happening. My fellow Americans, my colonials, please do not do this. This is the wrong way to do it. But he eventually was the one that advocated the hardest for outright war. Right. Grand, r- rules of war, not tarring and feathering civil servants. The point I'm, not, I'm trying to make is not that I'm not saying that we Americans should go out and tar and feather people. That's not what I'm saying. I, I, I'm of the same opinion as John Adams. Let's not do that. I am trying to highlight that the anger, the civil citizen anger at government having the audacity to tell me how to live my life was so overwhelming that it compelled them to viscerally hurt another man doing his job. I don't want us to hurt others, but it would be nice to see a little bit of that anger to say, this sucks, and I don't want this to happen anymore. Mr. Mayor, Mr. Commissioner, Mr. Governor, let's stop this.
2: But we don't. Well, you're absolutely right. And this is where, uh, well, you're right about that. You're wrong about the 10th Amendment. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and here's why. Because the you're either wrong about the 10th Amendment or you're an anarcho-libertarian. You, you got you to pick. Uh, <laughs> because if there is going to be a police power, if, there, if government will exercise any form of police power that is better suited to the state than to the Fed, because the state is more able to respond to individual local concern than the Fed is. Now, that should be even further dropped down to the sheriff. I mean, I, that's why constitutional sheriff is probably the, the best exercise of that authority. It's an elected individual that is elected uh, pursuant to the state constitution generally in order to uphold the laws of the state and the county, but also to defend individuals' uh, individuals' rights. And because they're a constitutionally elected officer, they don't answer to the legislature, but they answer to the people. And if they suck, then they won't be reelected or in many states they can be ousted. So if there is going to be a police power that is exercised by a government in the United States, it should be in the state. And in my view, it would be best placed into a constitutional sheriff uh, for each county, district, however you want to divide it. Now, you're also right in your second point, is that people should be looking to their state constitutions and saying, oh, how do we respond to this? How has the government gotten this much power? Uh, The problem isn't that necessarily, the problem isn't that the state has the ability to exercise these authorities. It's that the state is exercising this authority in this context there are certain things that the state probably shouldn't be able to do in a lot of these cases, but it's been 200 years, hundred years, depending on when your state entered into the union. Um, And much like the federal constitution, the states have strayed from their constitutions or in some states they've been, it's fairly easy to amend and they've amended a lot of protections out of them, or they've amended a lot of protect or powers into them. So I, the, The problem isn't just police power as the broad kind of construct. Courts are a little bit too deferential to state police power. That's a problem. But at the end of the day, if the populace isn't willing to exercise their power as the people, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the constitutional protections are. It doesn't matter what the balance of power is. If people aren't willing to exercise their power as the people, then you get these situations these uh, emergency statutes and everything, right? I mean, they were all put into place by legislatures that were elected by people. So if you want to fix what the government can do in response to a pandemic, you need your representative to propose an amendment to the Emergency Powers Act in your state. I mean, these are things that are going to actually have a tangible difference. And, uh, you know, the, what will be interesting for me to see is I'm not nearly as uh, hopeful that we're going to get vast reform after the pandemic. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think it's just further um, forced people to kind of radicalize in their own views of, of what government should and should be doing. But the key here is going to be not what happens, you know, next week with a lawsuit or next month with a lawsuit. What'll be interesting for me to see is in nine months, when legislatures are going into to different sessions or coming out of session, what happened? What did, legis- what did the legislators propose? What are legislatures looking at in order to reform some of these powers? And that's the only thing that's going to create any form of true lasting change here. I mean, court orders are helpful and they will extend in the, the church cases and they'll extend in the Second Amendment cases. And you'll see protections in those places most likely. But Unless there's a change at the statutory level for a lot of these things, then I don't think you're going to see lasting change.
0: This, I, I, we're, pro, we're running up against time, but this brings up the idea I've had of the unamendable Constitution of the of of passing an amendment that cannot itself be amended at all. The idea of of permanent libertarian protections, right? you know because you know you you say you no know, it's not police power It's the fact that people you know do this and do that and that's what i'm saying right we we've lost that spirit instead of saying you no know, war and revolution we've said yes please more please and all right if that's that if if democracy is the problem then and if democracy is the thing that has allowed these state constitutions to deteriorate to remove protections then the only thing i can think of is a anarchy, which is just not going to happen, or B, the unamendable amendment that protects these things. that I, well, I, I, don't, I don't even know the, the legality of that kind of thing, but I'm just – just...
1: I mean, or one thing too, Stanton, I just think if democracy has allowed it to get this far, democracy can also bring it back the other way, and that's the benefit of having a democracy where people do elect people, where in Colorado we can pass our own ballot initiatives – Um, a few other states allow that we can, there are things people can do. And I think the core problem, even beyond the system of government that has like the portion of it, that's been misused or the legislators that have, or executives who've taken too much power is that people in society by and large have forgotten how to think for themselves and how not to let the government create so much fear in us that we then give them permission to control more and more of our lives and hand over our rights and say, you know what? I'm so afraid that this might happen to me that, yeah, you know what? I'll give it up to you. You take care of it for me. And unfortunately um, we're raising some generations that that's the way they're being taught to think, which is why I like the school you teach at Stanton and you do a great job combating that for America. So we need more teachers like you. I think that's a great solution.
0: Oh, shucks. <laughs> um, something we haven't quite touched on. I think we're going to have to save for another episode is the very idea of emergency powers. Because um, I know that's something I, you know, I'm a Star Wars fan, so that definitely pops up into my head, <laughs> talking oh, yeah. about, you know, all that. But I I think it's important to put it out there for everyone, just very briefly before we close, since we, we just don't have enough time to dig into it, is, you know, the you know, we've talked about police powers a lot. All right, that's a problem, it's messy, and so on and so forth. But emergency powers are a little bit more tricky because they have a, a solid rationale for it. The Roman Republic at its height had a perfectly valid reason for appointing dictators, which is the uh, official embodiment of emergency
2: powers. Well, right? kind of. I mean... To ward people... off
0: against rebellions, obviously yeah. it's not the same thing as what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, in any emergency, like invasion, it's nice to have one guy, not two, that can
2: really... Well, the most famous example of a Roman Republic dictator is Sola, Be- who refused to give up his power and then responded by using prescriptions to literally kill off his political rivals. You make my point
0: for me. You make my point for me. <laughs> okay. Is that even with the valid reasons to have emergency powers or the extreme version of being a dictator, is that they are often vague because of the fact that emergency often cannot be defined because, well, if it's a new thing and it's emergency, we would hope you'd be able to react, even if we didn't give you the authority expected to do so. You know, aliens came down. Who knew? Right? But the idea is, emergency powers have a valid reason to exist. We want to be able to react. That's why there's a present as a commander-in-chief. And yet, it is those powers that lead to the rise of tyrants and caesars. And... I'll let you guys comment on that. I don't want to go any farther because that's, a, that's its own conversation. And then, you know what, Cody? I think we can have an, our own episode on that because that would be basically just a Roman forum discussion purely for you. We can make – I'll let you lead. You can open up. Do <laughs> you guys have any other comments on, on, on emergency powers?
2: Uh, no. I mean, I usually <sighs> – I feel like the last few episodes, I've I've been struck with inspiration at like the forty five minute mark, and then have been able to come up with this like fantastic, in my view, probably not in others, uh, like summary of how I view the issue, and um, you know maybe it's you know appropriate for this topic or episode or, or whatnot, or maybe it's just because we close we're closing it on Christmas and, and my brain is slowly deteriorating, uh, <laughs> but. You know, I just don't, I don't think that there's a good wrap up to this question. Um, I think that there are this, the lockdowns are the product of 250 years of straying away from constitutional protections and of the degradation of individual rights, but more importantly, individual responsibility. Uh, and this is what Christy was talking about, so I think it's just this kind of culmination of when people don't want to take responsibility for their own own rights and their own well-being and and push that away from them and then trust government to do that you you get a situation like we're in today, and this is very different from the situation of of other pandemics and whatnot so i don't I don't think I have a really good wrap up for this episode. I don't think I've got to like go out and educate the youth and you know, be merry and here's the happy time. I think my kind of final thought is just, you know, that we truly do need to remain vigilant when we're talking about these individual rights and and freedoms. And we need to find a way to ensure that we do not continue to allow government additional authority over our lives. Yeah, no, I think
1: you're absolutely right. And I'll just, I always see the time first saw I see silver linings everywhere, and I very much believe in hope, and that it always exists, and it 's always real. You are and the I optimist in- of the three Yes, yes <laughs> <laughs> I think going into the Christmas season, well Christmas itself, we've been in the season for a while, we know that the light shines in the world even in the darkest times, and I think no matter how dark this year and this lockdown and all the things have been for people, and some people have certainly suffered more than others we know that there is always light to come. There is always something better over the horizon and we can fight for it. We can stand up for it. We can stop just saying, yes, take it from me to the government. We can take more responsibility. We can teach our children to stand up and we can be the voice that speaks out and draws other people to speak out too. And I think if we commit ourselves to doing that and believe that it can make a difference, I think we'll be surprised at how much of a difference it can make. When we hit the end of our lives, Cody, I think you'll agree with (laughs) me. One day.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's such a better quote, because the only quote that popped into my head, especially when Stanton was talking, was, so this is how liberty dies with thunderous Thunderous applause.
0: applause.
1: (laughs) I tell you,
2: that will be its own episode.
0: I promise you. You have have a a whole actual Senate ready to go. Anyway. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we have talked about the difference between lockdowns and quarantines and mask orders. We've looked at their legal basis. We've looked at le- uh, recent Supreme Court rationales and their, and their limited scope. We have discussed the idea of political graft, of the very possibility that if a lobbyist can get this exemption, that that's a terrifying concept. We've looked at the really tricky problem of police, fo- uh, police powers, that you know, they exist. But they could be kept in check if a free people exercised their sovereignty and decided, you know what, we're not going to take this anymore. But that's not what's been happening. We've talked about how we've gone from tarn feathers to yes, please, more please. Please don't tarn feather anyone. I will put that disclaimer out once more. And we have discussed this idea of personal responsibility and hope. That there is hope that with this democratic process in our republic, we could save ourselves from ourselves. And with that, oh, and we came up with potentially two new episodes, one on liquor (laughs) licenses and one on emergency powers. I think that's been a good episode. A little longer, but, you know, it's been all right. We don't know what we're going to be talking about next time, but we know it will be self-evidence and it will likely be forgotten. Uh, Do please find us on Twitter and Instagram at SCF underscore pod as well as Facebook. And you can listen to us on multiple different streaming services, including Apple podcasts and on Spotify. We likely won't have an episode until after the holidays. So Merry Christmas, happy new year and all the other holidays you may or may not celebrate. If that case, have a good day. And with that, we'll see you next time.